Okay, going in five, four, three, two. I'm Heidi Berkey. And I'm Rachel Goebel. And this is the Ethical Storytelling Podcast. Gotta keep it fun. (laughs) Welcome to the Ethical Storytelling Podcast Power Dynamics Series. We have three incredibly special guests for this series who come from a diversity of backgrounds and cultures. Janelle Aldred is guest hosting these interviews, and we're grateful for her expertise and questions. Um, If you haven't already, please do go back and listen to our intro episode between Janelle and I talking about why this season in particular is so important and the thought behind this series. Today, we have the honor of talking with Rachel Jones, who graciously reached out to us through our contact form when we put out a call for this podcast series. Rachel's been an expat since 2003. She studied four languages, lived on three continents, and raised three third culture kids. Rachel has written for the New York Times, Christianity Today, and is the author of the book Stronger Than Death about Somalia's Mother Teresa, a white Italian woman in which she directly addresses the topic of the white savior complex in this region. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Hi, it's great to be here. Fantastic. And so we're talking, doing this series on power dynamics in storytelling and especially looking at the social impact space. And and so we're really excited to speak to you from your perspective, your lens. So just if you could just explain in your own words a bit about your work and, and the kind of the heart behind your work. Sure. So my husband and I and our three children live in the Horn of Africa. We moved here in 2003 to Somalia. And then in 2004, we moved across the border to Djibouti, where we've been since 2004. And so we're still here. It's where I am right now. Um, My husband's always been in the education sector. So he was a professor for most of our time here. And then recently, we've been asked by the local government to start a school. And so now we run our own school. And all along, I've been a writer. And so really started writing around 2008, nine. Mm-hmm. And um, because of that, I've, I've thought a lot about storytelling. And um, yeah, so that's along with raising the kids and just doing a lot of work with the school that we started. Those are my main roles here. That's amazing. And, and it's so interesting because you are in the space where a lot of people from NGOs are or, or, or what they're doing, which is actually situated in the in the country, in the context, in the culture of this kind of stories that we are then sending back home, so to speak, for, you know, in, in, in kind of our Western culture. So if we just dive right in, it's kind of in your experience of telling stories, how did you go from kind of being conscious about thinking about, OK, well, how am I reflecting the stories of the people that I live amongst to actually telling stories that you feel really are honouring to the space? Well, it's, it really was um, a learning process for me because I didn't think about these things in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Although, because we work and live in the Somali culture, um, the stories that I heard before we came here were always negative. Yeah. I mean, I, I, most Americans have a very negative idea of Somalia. It's dangerous. There's pirates. There's war. There's famine. There's anarchy. And th- that's the ongoing story. And so... When I came here and moved into Somaliland, actually in the north where it was peaceful and we were welcomed and um, people were excited to teach us their culture and their language and things, I thought, okay, these two stories are not matching. What I heard and what I experienced were not the same. 
but I didn't think of it in the context of how am I going to tell these stories differently. I just was experiencing it myself. And that, um, that contradiction or that dichotomy just has stuck with me for a long time. And then I would go back. I'm from Minnesota originally. Mm-hmm. I would go back to the United States and see family and friends. And, and there was always this assumption that I was scared where we were living or that we were in danger or that, um, you know, I wasn't being welcomed and things like this. And so then I would start just kind of talking about my friends or my kids' teachers who are Somali or my husband's coworkers who are Somali. And, and just without even really realizing it, I was trying to change the story that people were hearing about yes. Somalia and the region. And, um, and then when I started writing, I realized I don't want to tell a story that, that a journalist could, you know, drop in and tell with 24 hour perspective of all the traditional, not traditional, the, um, the generic stories that the West yeah. would hear. I wanted to tell the deeper stories of, um, you know, real friendships and what it was like to give birth here or what it was, some of the cultural things I was learning yeah. that were really Somali culture and people that, that really contradicted the other stories coming out. And so it became just, a because it's so personal for me, because it's so much of my life and community to be able to present a story of beauty and goodness and creativity coming out of this region became really important to me. And so as I started writing um, and getting published, it it really became something I wanted to do, not just to publish like the easy story with the, the clickbait title, but the deeper one that would take longer to understand and also longer to write, um, but would provide a much more, complete picture so what was that moment in you you said when you first arrived you weren't thinking about some of these power dynamics some of these issues what were the what was the moment or I suppose moments that um kind of made you come alive to that I think a lot of it started around 2013 I suppose um I read Behind the Beautiful Forevers by Catherine Boo which is just this incredible book, um, nonfiction. She, she's, she had gone into an Indian slum and wrote about what she saw there and how she did that. And then I read all these interviews with her and how she was able to represent these people's lives, um, without putting herself into the story at all. It was incredible. And so I just started to think about how could I do that without being, having to be part of the story. Um, so I think it was reading that book and then being a part of some different blog online conversations, some people who I started to see were doing this really well. And some people who, when I would read their essays or their posts, I would feel very uncomfortable. And I was trying to figure out why do I feel uncomfortable? What is not quite right that I'm seeing here? And then sort of unpacking that, um, at the same time. And then also at that same time, I was really working with a local running club here that I had started several years before. And I went back to work with them. And, um, these girls were from, very low income families. Many of them had not been in school ever until they joined our running team. And so we, part of the goal of this team was to also keep girls in school. And as I was working with them and I was kind of starting to write some of their stories, um, I realized, or I, I just had to wrestle with how am I going to tell these girls stories that doesn't only represent them as the poor girl who yeah. has never been to, you know, but who, what's her personality? What's her character on the team? What is she bringing to this team? Some of it's negative, you know, it's not all going to be good. I, I'm there, there is truth to the negative stories coming out of this region, just like there's truth to negative stories 
out of any region. Mm-hmm. Um, but how can I let these girls be their full human, their full complex, you know, personhood, good and bad, not just simplified by an economic structure or an educational level. Um, so all those things happening at the same time. It is kind of an issue of thoughtfulness and actually yes. to really begin to think, okay, well, why am I doing this? What is my intention? How am I helping? Is my presence here helpful <laughs> to the flourishing of this community? Um, and how am I helping to see them, not as I'm not a voice for the voiceless, but they have voices and actually these are the voices that I want to lift up. But I think the interesting part is when words start getting thrown in like um, colonialism, um, saviour mentality, privilege, supremacy, white supremacy. Now, as a person of colour, so those words don't offend me in a sense because there's, you know the people who look like me have been on typically on the other receiving end of that. So, you know, if I ask you kind of as a, as a white woman, like what do you think makes people smart when they hear those words, although they are there to help? What do I think makes them have a negative? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it can be really easy to say, well, those words were from a long time ago, like colonialism. That's not me. You know, that wasn't, I didn't do that. So there's kind of this reaction of not being willing to recognize whole systemic long-term problems that can contribute to things um, because it means that I have to change or I have to uh, behave differently. I have to relinquish some of my power. Um, I have to apologize even, you know, actually say I have benefited from this system and I can see how it has harmed you and I'm sorry and then do something different. And that is really hard. And so those, you know, that's just easier to say, oh, not me. Yeah. I, I'm not like that, you know. And sometimes that's not something that can be necessarily helped on an individual basis, but recognizing it is still important. Acknowledging it still matters. Yeah. Um, you know, or even in some way, not with all of these things, but with some things like privilege, I think there is there can be an opportunity to use it well, even while speaking out or trying not to, um, you know, promote it or take advantage of it necessarily. Yeah. Um, and so I, I want to be you know, careful how I talk about that, but I do. So, okay. Just yesterday I was at the police station with one of our teachers, another white American. Um, and she and I have experienced just the, inordinate amount of sexual harassment. Wow, okay. um, and I, for me, I've experienced it for 17 years. I have different ways of dealing with it. Um, but when it started happening to my teachers that I feel responsible for, I just kind of lost it. Mm. <laughs> I wanted to really stand up for her. And so we asked a woman who's on the board of our school. She's a Jibushin woman, the local lady, who's very influential, just a, a wonderful woman, to come with us. So she came with us to the police station. And I know, I mean, we walked right in to talk to the police, the chief of police, who was also another woman. Um, we went straight to her. She took it very seriously. And, you know, we made a plan of how we can respond and all these different things. And I know the reason that we were able to get into that meeting so quickly and be taken so seriously is because we are white Americans. Mm. And uh, I didn't want to just leave it at that. I want, so the whole time we were talking throughout the entire conversation and afterwards, and as I look forward ongoing, um, I kept asking the police chief and also the woman that I had brought with us 
the, the local woman, how are Djiboutian women experiencing sexual harassment? What is happening in to your women, to your friends, to your communities, in your neighborhoods? Um, are conversations happening at schools? Are they happening in the mosque? What are the police doing? And like, I kept trying to put the conversation Why just death? to say, yeah, it's not just us. I don't want this to be just us. Um, please don't come and patrol the neighborhood because of me, but because of all the women who live here. And then after that, I spent another hour or so with the woman and we had a great conversation about what needs to happen on the local level in the communities. And so I think about like the Me Too movement, um, which, yeah. you know, really started with celebrities. Yeah, <laughs> started with women that's why people took it seriously. Yeah, exactly. That is why they took it seriously. So if these police will take seriously my complaint because I'm a white American woman, I want to use that to turn it back. And um, and so in some sense, being aware of these things doesn't have to be just like a negative, painful denial. Yeah. I'm not part of capitalism. I, I want to deny my privilege, but I can't escape the fact that I am a white American. That is not going to change. Yeah. Um, and so what can I do with that to to level the power dynamic, you know, to, to involve my Djiboutian friends and benefit them? And I think that's really interesting um, comment because I, I have some interesting... Um, thoughts about privilege well I think they're interesting they may they may very well not be interesting but just kind of the nuance of what privilege actually is mm. and 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 what it isn't and what it can do and what it can't do um and I I sometimes struggle sometimes as 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 I understand it because in a sense like you say who you are and and how you are in that space cannot be it cannot be changed because you are who you are where mm-hmm. you are as yourself and these people are themselves how do we try to move beyond just bringing that lady in the room to actually saying okay well how do we shift this power dynamic so that lady could also come into this room minus me and be taken seriously do you think privilege extends to that? Do you think that's a narrative thing? Like, I'd just be interested to hear your thoughts. Mm. Yeah, I think that, I think it can be used in that way. It, it was great intention and um, yeah. humility. Mm. Um, I think, I, you know, to be honest, I was taking care of, I was taking advantage of some of her privilege as a very influential woman. Yeah. And so, you know, and I was very conscious of that. My husband said, this is the person that you call to make this meeting, you know? And so for me to know that I'm doing that on a lower rung, um, to think about how there's all these different levels of privilege or different things, not just the racial dynamic. It's, you know, and so how can we use what we've each been given her and her unique position and me and mine. And then, you know, my, my friend in the, lower income section of town and her place of privilege with her community there that's so close knit that I'm not part of, you know, there's different ways that we can leverage each other as long as we're um, conscious of it and willing to step back and not to push our own agenda. Yeah. Um, and then partner together and to, to recognize this is the strength that you bring to this conversation or this situation. And this is a strength that you bring and then highlight that, if we can do that for each other, you know, I think that's how we can take advantage of those those nuances of privilege. And I think that's so good because I think what some people 
um, struggle with in that situation is they say, well, I've got this privilege, so I want to do this thing for you, mm. which still kind of holds that power dynamic in play. Yes. Yeah. You know, so, okay, so in, in one way, I'm just thinking about this right now. Um, I'm really glad that this woman used her privilege on my behalf. Yeah. <laughs> I do not feel bad about that. I don't yeah. resent her for it. She no. is, um, you know, and so I don't know if that is necessarily negative. I wouldn't have wanted her to say, oh, no, no, I can't help you with this because yeah. of my <laughs> whatever. Um, I've, I've written about a woman who was kind of known as the Mother Teresa of Somalia, and she was in, this is a long time ago, but in the 80s, there was a massacre in northern Kenya, and she was rescuing people from this massacre. And as I thought about this concept of privilege and white savior dynamics, so this woman was Italian. She was a white mm -hmm. Italian Catholic. Um, and all the Somalis that I have talked to about her love and adore her and people have specifically I've asked them specifically do you feel like she was a white savior did she struggle with this issue or this complex when she was you know serving you and they said I don't know first of all they said no we don't think that she had that but then they would say she saved my life yeah so she was white and she saved my life and if that makes her a white savior there they said <laughs> hey with that you know yeah of course these different dynamics that play into it of what kind of attitude is coming into it. And, and her story is much more complex than I'm able to say just right now. But, um, I just think there, there, there is a point at which those of us who need to latch onto someone else's privilege are okay with that. Yeah. And, yeah. And so when do we use it wisely? When do we try to relinquish it? Um, those are all things that have to be wrestled with. And I, I think, it has to be on an individual basis sometimes. Of course, there's bigger conversations that can be useful for it. But I think this is what makes it so hard to, when I see things really being judged, you know, on the internet, of course, it's so easy just to cast yeah. a judgment. <laughs> they did over there. That looks so bad because of this and this mm. and this reason. Um, but we don't know all that's going into it. We don't know all the outcomes. Uh, so, yeah, it's a really complicated conversation. It is, and I, and I think this is kind of why we are not trying to say that we have all the answers as to what is healthy power dynamic, what is unhealthy. I think it probably is easier to call out the unhealthy stuff that you see because it's just so obvious sometimes rather than saying, but this is where it worked really well. Um, because I think sometimes that is harder to do and the internet is a very not nuanced place. Um, it's definitely more of an ax than a scalpel. Um, and so, you know, it's easy to make judgments from afar. Um, but I think, how do we, in thinking, okay, there are individual stories and situations, how do we begin to change the overriding narrative and power dynamic? How how do we begin to make that shift? Because even for NGOs now, people are much more interested in authentic stories and in truth-telling People are definitely wanting to understand more the nuance of the situation, the highs and the lows. How do we begin to to change that big overriding dynamic about somewhere like, say, Somaliland? Mm. Can we? Yeah, can we is a hard question because are the are the donors willing to be patient to ride a story through ups and downs? in order to get all that complexity and nuance out of it. You know, if they're just reading a, a newsletter with a paragraph story about someone, you can't fit it all in there. 
Yeah. And so if you want to follow someone's story for a long time, they're going to have to be willing to be patient. Um, they're going to have to be willing to see the failures. I mean, if I was honest about all the, the things that we don't put in our reports, yeah. um, there's a lot more failure, it seems like, than success, you know? People don't want to hear that. And so can we change that? Um, yeah. I think that we... Oh, boy, can we? <laughs> I mean, I think, it, yeah, I know, it's a big question. And I think it kind of comes back to something we touched on earlier, which is just that we must allow for the complex. Yeah. Because I think at the moment we've led donors maybe to a space where we've made it so simple for them to understand that actually we we leave no room for the complexity of human nature and the complexity of as in any life, success is not just this upward trajectory. It tends to be a bit more up, down, up, down, up, down, but the general trajectory is still up. Um, I think in some way, yes. I think we can set that standard. Like you said, maybe we've trained donors to think or expect a certain kind of story. So what if we slowly were able to nudge the needle a little bit, little bit, until they're willing to hear a different kind of story? Um, I, I also think maybe part of it can be changing. What do we think of as the overall goal? Yeah. Story. So is the goal that this person had a good crop this year or is the goal that they have learned how to farm and they've learned how to survive a hard season. And in 10 years they have had, you know, six years of good crops. I don't know. I'm just, yeah, no, yeah, no, I know. I understand what you mean. Yeah. But can we change what the outcome intention is? Um, and I think that is something that we can change as storytellers. Um, you know, just even in that moment of being honest, of saying this year the crop failed and then not adding. And so we helped them again. You know, we yeah. solved the problem. Forgetting, like, don't add that. But this year the crop failed and we're going to keep trying. Yeah. Or we're going to keep partnering because we are a community with this person and we care about the person, not the outcome of their crop. We care about the outcome of their, you know, experience in this project, whether it's, like I said, growth and character or knowing that there is a girl that's with them through their struggle process. Like all of that can change the overall kind of point or outcome of the story. And so as a, a storyteller who's got that dynamic, the power of telling the story, um, we get to choose what is the outcome yeah. of the expectation, you know, for why are we doing this? Why are we even doing this project in the first place, let alone why are we telling a story about it? What are some of the things that you've incorporated in your storytelling of ways of telling a story from someone's true perspective that you think or that potentially an NGO could benefit from hearing and incorporating in the way that they write their stories about people? Mm -hmm. um, I think just I really try to understand the broader context of something. So placing someone's story outside of just that one event that happened, but into their family community, how is this in, like for, for the girls on our team, how do your parents feel about your running? How do your neighbors view you running? How do your teachers respond to you being in class as a runner? So trying to put her into the context of her community, um, which, which develops her complexity as a person um, so when I write about the runners, I try to think about 
them, not just as the runner or not just as the girl we're trying to help with education or the girl with no breakfast, but the sister, the, the friend. And so, um, you know, I have a great advantage of being here, of speaking the language and, and seeing people over time. But I still think even in a short way, you could, NGOs can put people into their context. So it's not just a woman that you're giving a loan to because she's poor. It's a woman you're giving a loan to who has a tea business and a partner and she's working in conjunction with the shop on the corner. You know, she's a part of a system yeah. and she needs help to overcome a barrier. And so we're helping her with this loan right now, but she belongs to something and she's part of something. Um, and so, you know, in those kinds of ways, I think putting stories into their context or historical context, even if there's some way to do that, um, maybe in some places it might be appropriate to put it into a religious context. You know, she's a, here's a Muslim woman and she's part of the mosque on the corner or whatever it might be. Um, and so, so putting people and their stories outside of just like that one moment, you know, whether it's even when it comes to maybe disaster relief, here's a person whose house was destroyed by a flood two weeks ago, we had floods here in Djibouti. Um, but it's not just that. And so even in just two sentences or so in a short update, you could put that into a broader context uh, that, that gives some kind of nuance to the complexity of a person um, and lets their story be their personal story, not just a generic flood disaster story. And how do you hold yourself accountable to that kind of true storytelling? Oh, good question. <laughs> um, I don't know that I always do it well, but I just, I really try to think about, sometimes I even let the local person read or know the story. So that's part of it, is being very clear with someone, this is why I'm asking you these things. I'm going to write this story. I'm going to send it to people if that's okay with you. You know, make sure, making sure I get their permission, but also letting them see it afterwards. How do they respond to it? Um, and then feedback from people is helpful. Uh so, yeah, things like that. And, and being in a community here myself with other Americans. So this isn't an example of an actual story that I told. But last week I was part of, as a, with our school, I was part of a donation that we were doing to another school. And I felt really uncomfortable about how the donation happened. It, it just didn't go down well. And um, afterwards, one of the teachers on our staff, came up to me and I'm the boss's wife and I'm one of the directors. So I kind of have a position of, you know, power. Yeah, power. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, um, I, she said, I personally felt really uncomfortable with how that donation went. And I wondered if you would be willing to initiate a conversation about what we could learn from that and how we could do it better next time at our next staff meeting. And, uh, <laughs> I just thought that was, she handled it so well. Um, she so in terms of accountability I have people like that around me yeah and also just learning from her example she was able to come to me and say you know she wasn't casting blame she wasn't judging she was saying I personally felt uncomfortable and could you help us learn from this experience was and she so, a local woman or American sorry just for the listeners no it's okay she's American yeah yeah um and so I thought she handled that really well and and so I'm thankful that I have people like that around me who can say, and I also felt uncomfortable with it. So it was easy for me to respond. Well to that. <laughs> yeah. And how have you found it sometimes situations where someone has brought something to your attention that maybe you're kind of like, I just didn't see that. Mm. Or I just didn't see it that way. Yeah. I mean, 
that's a lot of times exactly what I'll say, like, oh my gosh, I didn't see that. Can you explain to me more, you know, what you saw that went badly in that situation? And then I can feel sometimes defensive, like, well, you don't know, I've got 15 years of experience or whatever it might be. But, um, but I do think fresh eyes, I've just learned through those actually 17 years of experience, I've learned that fresh eyes can really give me good insight. Um, and so I try to be willing to learn and hear from people when they have critiques. Um, yeah, it can, it can be challenging to be pushed back on, but I need to be. And so I have just learned that humility is one of the absolute requirements in, in this kind of work. Um, so when people, personally, when they come to me, I, I am willing to hear it. And I think that is that is so important because um, I've definitely been in situations where, you know, you kind of sit in the room in a meeting and sometimes I'm the only person of colour, but, you know, in a Western context and we're talking about something and I'm like, ah, yeah, that really is like, I don't really think that's okay. And there is that moment of how do we journey well with people as we kind of, I think we always tend to think of calling something out as negative. And I think we think, and you kind of mentioned it earlier and, we kind of think about a lot of these things as negative yeah. when actually how do you've managed to turn it into a positive experience? So yeah, it feels uncomfortable, but I know that the end result is those fresh eyes are giving me fresh insights, something that I didn't previously see. How can we all kind of lower our defenses? What, what is the thing that helps you to do that? Is it knowing the end result? Is it the bigger picture? You know, how did you go through that process of getting better at receiving some of that feedback? Well, I've definitely seen my failures. And so I'm well aware of my, at least the weaknesses that I can see. I know that they're there. Um, and so I've made a lot of mistakes in all these years and I've hurt people and I've made poor choices in some of my storytelling or our work or service projects. Um, and so being very aware of my own Weaknesses and failings, I think, helps me hear new critiques and new insight well. Um, and then just recognizing that we, I, I think oftentimes people move abroad and think, I'm going to kind of go local. I'm going to become like the people. I'm going to lose be one of them. And of course, within just a short time, you realize, like, that's never going to happen. I'm always going to be me. I'm always going to be these things. And I can learn some language and whatever. But um, so I, I guess what I'm saying in that is that um, I will never know this culture the way that a local person does. Yeah. I will never have the right instinctual response to to something. Like I don't, I don't know the nuances. I don't know the history and the the depths of things that happen here the way that I would in Minnesota. Uh, and so that I think that enforced cultural humility that you learn when you live abroad for so long of like the longer I live here, the less I know, because the more I know, I don't know. Yeah. Um, just makes me open to, to input. Like I just, I need to learn. I'm always needing to learn. And so that's, that's just a huge character trait that I put on all the time. No, that is so, I think that's so good and just, and just so healthy um, in terms of, how you actually in real terms try to level um the power dynamic and level the playing field for for us to see each other as equal and i think how to 
other people. So there may be some people who love what you're saying. They're in an organization that doesn't always support it, not because it's a bad organization, but because of the blind spots that we all have, but that some people are less willing to address than others of how this can be an issue. What would you encourage someone who's maybe sitting in an organization like, I want to tell better stories. I know we can do it. I don't think I have the agency, the power. How would you encourage them to kind of start that conversation? I think I would encourage them to do like what this staff teacher did with me of just saying in a very, making it, um, starting with yourself, yeah. starting by, I don't really feel good about this. And I wondered if you could help me do better. <laughs> and yeah. so you're putting that director or that boss in a position of, of the hierarchy, but you're asking for help and you're pointing out something that feels uncomfortable. And I, I think, at least a good director, a good boss would recognize that and be willing to explore it. And then as they're exploring it on your behalf, would hopefully be able to explore it in their own heart. Um, and if that wouldn't happen on the leadership, potentially, it could still happen among the peers yeah. of an organization. As Again, as the staff teacher said, could you raise this at our next staff meeting? And so then it became a broader conversation with everybody that even if I wasn't a part of, those teachers could still be talking together. Or if I wasn't willing to facilitate it, they could still pursue it. And so, you know, starting on that level, would um, that would be a suggestion. I think asking questions, um, maybe sharing something that they have read or heard or listened to and say, Hey, this is really interesting. What do you think? Do you think it applies to us or not? Instead yeah. of saying what we need to do, or this is what's wrong with what you're doing. Um, but really approaching it as let's explore this together. Um, I think is a good way to do it. Cause I think what I'm hearing from you just so strongly is it just a real sense of, as you kind of mentioned earlier, humility yes. in the whole thing of not casting yourself as the person that's right, but just as the, person seeking answers and, and seeking truth or seeking a better way to be in the space and, and to do it and I think I mean I could keep talking but I think probably for the last question would just be what do you think is the biggest power dynamic myth I think probably the biggest myth is that we can ever entirely get rid of power dynamics okay. which maybe sounds negative um, and maybe it is negative, but I don't know if it is possible to just eliminate them entirely. But I think like what we had talked about with the, in terms of privilege and sort of latching on to someone else's privilege or how can we use this wisely? Um, I think when it comes to power dynamics, maybe it's possible that we can mitigate them, that we can even try to turn them upside down creatively, um, and somehow manipulate them to benefit other people. But I don't think that power dynamics are ever really going to go away. No, yeah. I hear that and I understand where you're coming from. And I don't think it's negative, but I think it's a it's a reality that, like you say, we have to look to. And so if we know that the power dynamic may always be slightly skewed, it's just how do we work that well? How mm -hmm. do we how do we make it better within the construct of what it is? Well, thank you so much. I, I so enjoyed that conversation. Thank you so much for being part of this um, of this series on power dynamics. Thank you. I'm excited to hear all the episodes. It's, it's such a great conversation. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks for taking time to listen and explore what it means to ethically tell stories with us. Make sure to visit ethicalstorytelling.com 
for more practical resources on ethical storytelling, including blog posts, new podcasts, and upcoming webinars. Please tell your friends about ethical storytelling. It's small and a labor of love, and we all do this because we want to see change. So help us spread the word with your family and friends. Before we say goodbye, we'd love to thank everyone that helped on the show this week. You all, the listeners, for tuning in. Kyle Hara for editing each episode. Lauren Ellis for web support. And music by Broke for free. We'll see you next week.